Merciful God, who sent your messengers, the prophets, to preach repentance and prepare the way for our salvation, give us grace to heed their warnings and forsake our sins, that we may greet with joy the coming of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. That's the collect appointed for the second Sunday of Advent 2022, and that would be for December the 4th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along. Just so catch up. We had a great trip to Seattle. The weather was Seattle-like the whole time we were there. We had one really nice day and then other days that were either cloudy or rainy the whole time. Had a good time, though, because we were there with our son Pelham and his wife Anna, and we really enjoyed being with them, kind of coming into their world for a little while and, and, and seeing how things work for them. So it was good. It was a good trip. Everything about it went smoothly. Thanks for your prayers. Um, we really did have a good time. It was a blessing to be with them. We're, we're actually here this week, and then we leave on Sunday and head to the beach with friends uh, for their, with their beach house for the next several days. We'll be down there with them, and it's, it's, um, I'm glad that we're going to get an opportunity to spend time with them. Um, it, it's an important thing for us to be able to spend time with these, this particular couple. So anyway, we're, we're excited to be doing that, excited to be kind of going uh, back to where it all began, because that's where I went to seminary. It was in Pauley's Island, actually. So um, excited to go there. Haven't felt great all week. I kind of had a little bit of a cold or something going on. and um, But other than that, everything's good. So um, glad to be home, but glad to be heading out for a few days again as well. So um, it, it's good. Everything is good. So we're, we're starting into this journey of Advent that I challenged you with last week, and I, I hope that you um, considered um, your life and, and, and the way that you spend your time and the things that you do and, and are making the changes that the Lord would have you make, listening to the Holy Spirit. So what we get today is a very similar Isaiah passage to last week's passage, frankly. Last week we were in Isaiah 2. Today we're in, in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 to 10. So you'll know that there's a, there's a weekly portion of the Torah, the first five books of Moses, that's read um, in, within Judaism. So it goes through the entire Torah in one year, and those particular sections are called Parsha. So the, in addition to the Torah, there's a, actually an additional reading from one of the prophets or the writings that, that is associated with it. And, and this passage from Isaiah 11 is actually that, that, that par, uh, passage from the prophets and the writings is called the Haftarah. So the, the Haftarah uh, for the, the day of Passover, actually. The last, the last Sabbath of Passover is actually this passage, and why? And, and it's because it points to, so Passover celebrates what? The exodus from Egypt, right? So this is the promise of the great exodus when Messiah comes. So a second exodus. This is the greater exodus than uh, even the one out of Egypt, because God's kingdom will be fully established at this time, and so that that it's an important passage in Judaism, and the fact that it comes at Passover as Jesus is being sacrificed on the cross, as he makes this willing sacrifice of himself, then then they're reading this passage as Messiah is dying, in order that the kingdom might be partially established now by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. 
So what we get is is this in Isaiah 11, verses 1 to 10. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And what is that pointing to? If you've ever seen a tree that's been cut down and then shoots begin to come out from it after it looks like it's dead, that's exactly what it's talking about. Judgment has come, and then there will come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. So this thing that looks like it's dead and looks like it's, it's through having any life in it, suddenly something comes up and there's new life from what appears to all intents and purposes to be dead. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. These are all the things that, that you would want Messiah to have, right? I mean, when Solomon is made king, what is it that he prays for? He asks the Lord for wisdom, and the Lord gives him wisdom, but he also gives him wealth. Well, to be given wisdom and to actually use that wisdom are two different things. For a while, Solomon was faithful in his use of the wisdom that he had been given, and it attracted the attention of the world, and the whole world came to see this great wisdom that the king of Israel had. And then, along the way, he allowed himself to get seduced by other things, and the wisdom became less important until finally, at the end, he writes the wisdom book that's called Ecclesiastes. And, and that says that everything under the sun is just a shiny thing and a distraction from the real thing, which is everything above the sun. So, but he allowed himself to get distracted, and it cost him his kingdom. Not in his lifetime, but, but after his death, the kingdom of Israel was never again united. It was split eight uh, or ten and two, so the northern kingdom being the group that split off, and then the two tribes that remained behind, Judah and Benjamin, remained behind in, in southern Israel with, with capital in Jerusalem. And, and so his wisdom failed. Why? Because he wasn't faithful with what he had been given. He was unfaithful to the God who gave him wisdom in the marrying of other wives from other religions who worshiped other gods. So, so the Spirit of the Lord with the Messiah will rest upon him. It'll remain there, which is exactly the sign that John the Baptist was given, that the Spirit would descend like a dove and it would remain on him. And so that's exactly what happened. And what is the dove a symbol of? Well, it's a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And so here, that's exactly what we see. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. And that's a spirit of wisdom and understanding and counsel and might and knowledge and fear of the Lord. That's the thing that it seems like Solomon lost along the way. He, he, for, he didn't dance with the one who brung him. He allowed it. He allowed himself to be seduced by these women who he took as wives and concubines. And so this one, however, this Messiah, that's not going to happen. Why? His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. That's an unusual set of words, to say the least. His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. He will stand in awe in delight of God. In other words, and that will then restrain him from sin. Because he stands in delight in the fear of the Lord. It is his joy to serve God. It is his joy to stand under the headship and the kingship of the living God. <clears throat> he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. In other words, he'll have a wisdom that comes from above. He'll have a wisdom that transcends the witness of his eyes and the, 
um, the witness of what his ears have heard. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Now, that's an important thing. What is that? Because there's a difference between justice and righteousness. Justice is what does that person deserve? Righteousness goes beyond that with compassion, with mercy, with love. And if you haven't been listening to it, I'm in the middle right now on the daily podcast of a series on the 13 attributes of divine mercy that are found in Exodus 34, 6 to 8. It's an important tenet in Judaism, and it's important for us as well. But what we're going to get here is one who will righteously judge. So justice will be done, but it'll be tempered with mercy. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Justice happens at the cross, right? Sin is judged and condemned. Not Jesus, but sin, our sin. We deserved to be on that cross, not Jesus. And then, so sin is judged, but then righteousness is imputing Jesus' righteousness to us. It's the compassion and the mercy of God for those that he's created in his image. And so with righteousness, you'll judge the poor. There's, there, uh, part of the law is that if, if you have loaned money to a poor person, then, then and you've taken his cloak as a pledge, as collateral against that loan— you have to give it back to him at night because it's the only thing that he has to keep him warm. That That's how justice and righteousness work together. This is that justice says you're entitled to that as collateral, but righteousness says, but, but, but we can't take it away from him. It takes that other person seriously in this. It, it moves justice from, from a strictly legal preceding or proceeding into a different realm. It's an interpersonal love for your neighbor that then gets in, in the middle of this thing called justice. And so there's, there's something beyond strict justice that's demanded, and that is righteousness. And that righteousness has everything in the world to do with love one another as you love yourself. It's exactly the same thing. And so, so he, what it says is the Messiah will, will judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Now, Jesus talks about judging the poor in spirit and, and the meek who will inherit the earth. Right? So, so Jesus speaks these, this language when he comes. And then ultimately it says, He will also strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. So justice for the poor and the meek, and then he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth because it is done injustice. And it is not acting in righteousness. It's, it's acting in oppression of the poor. So he'll strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will kill the wicked. And the wicked are contrasted with the righteous. Those two words are are split apart from one another as far as the east is from the west. And so that's who Jesus is judging, is those who have determined not to be righteous. Those who are, in fact, wicked which means they do the opposite of righteousness. And we see in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10, this is what Paul says about the man of lawlessness. This is the wicked, and the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus Christ will kill what with the breath of his mouth, which is exactly what Isaiah says, that he, Messiah, will kill the wicked with the breath of his lips. And so he says, he, he, Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth the lawless one and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is the activity of Satan 
with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. So that's what Paul says Messiah will do when he comes again. Paul sees the two horizons. Jesus has come, and so the kingdom has been inaugurated. So we're in the now, but we're also in the not yet. And so the not yet is the time Paul's pointing to here, when the fulfillment of Isaiah's messianic prophecy of the the Messiah will kill the wicked with the breath of his lips, Paul says that waits for the second coming. And then he goes on to say, Isaiah does, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, that's the Messiah, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. So what, what is, how do those two things fit together? And I just showed you a minute ago with Solomon that, that there was a wisdom that he had, but he wasn't faithful to the gift that he had been given. He didn't use the gift he had been given with wisdom. And so he, he went away from the Lord, and he lost his way. And, and what, what Isaiah is saying here is, no, righteousness, that, that perfect justice— it will be the belt of his waist and faithfulness, the belt of his loins. In other words, he won't lose the thread. He will remain faithful to that righteousness. You'll be able to depend on him in a way that you've never been able to depend on another human being. In fact, the Psalms say, don't put your trust in princes and rulers. I would say, don't put it in anybody. None of us deserve it. But here is one who you can put your trust in, and we know who he is. We know him to be the Lord Jesus. And, and what does Isaiah then tell us will be the, the result of his coming, right? The wolf shall lie down with the lamb, or shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. The young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put its hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What a powerful image that is, that metaphor, or that's a simile, I guess, as the waters cover the sea. It's an interesting thing, the way that they thought about the waters and the sea. The sea is the moving part. The waters are the part that rest on the top. And so that's exactly what he says it's going to be like. There will be knowledge of the Lord so full that it's as as though the waters cover the sea. And those two things are indistinguishable. And when Jesus speaks about the vine and the branches, he's speaking the same kind of language. Those things are indistinguishable from one another. And that's exactly how it's intended to be. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as the signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place, where he stays, will be glorious. Now, in last week's lesson, what we saw in Isaiah was this, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. This is the nations saying this, that he may teach us his ways, and we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He'll judge between the nations and decide disputes for many peoples. And they'll beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And so he's talking there about nations and peace among the nations as a result of the coming of Messiah and the knowledge in the world that true righteousness and true justice is found in Israel. And therefore, the nations will stream there in order that they might know these things, in order that they might live under his blessed rule and reign. And so that vision shows us what it looks like when Messiah comes with nations beating their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks and no longer 
coming against war anymore because he dispenses true justice. He sorts out all those disputes between nations in such a way that they accept his judgment as righteous and true. And therefore, they need not go to war any longer because their disputes can be avoided by the word of God and the application of that word to their situation. And so it's the same thing. So here today, what do we get? We get peace among the animal kingdom that then also expresses itself in peace between the animal kingdom and humankind. And so it's a wonderful, beautiful thing. It's the earth is finally at peace. And, and Paul will say things like that in, in Romans, in fact, when he says the whole creation groans in anticipation of the revelation of the sons of God because it will bring peace to the world. There will no longer be enmity in the world because there will be true justice and true, true righteousness in the world. And when that's in place, and when that's complete, then, then the world will be utterly at peace. What a beautiful vision that is. It, the, the Psalm 23 is the vision of God being with us in the midst of a world that's, that's characterized by enmity and strife. This passage from Isaiah tells us there will come a day when that won't be true anymore. But it's when he is the God of all people. So in, in the Matthew passage today, it's Matthew 3, 1 to 12. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Now, it's an odd thing to be out preaching in the wilderness, to be honest with you, because that's not where people lived. But that's where John was. You had to make the effort to go and hear John. He says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. This is he, is John, by the way, who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. What that speaking of, that metaphor right there, is speaking of the coming of a king. And when a king came, you've heard me say this before, you made his route as straight as possible with fewer impediments than would ordinarily be there. And so in Isaiah, he tells us that the, the low places will be lifted up and the high places will be brought down and there'll be a smooth path. You can go through parts of South Carolina now and you'll pass along what's known as the King's Highway. And the, the King's Highway was how everything oriented because it was the route that he passed on. There's a, a place, a plantation just down below Georgetown, uh, South Carolina, where when, when George Washington came through there, they reoriented the entire house because the front of the house faced away from the King's Highway. But because George Washington was going to come past, they put a new front door, essentially, with a porch on it, on the side of King's Highway so that he could enter through the front door. And so, so what it is is making the path straight for a king to come and take his throne. And that's exactly what you see in the events of Palm Sunday when they strow their cloaks on the ground, creating essentially a red carpet for the king. And so that's exactly what John's job is, is to, to prepare a people for the, to, to greet him with joy. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Now, Matthew couldn't have made the comparison with Elijah any clearer than he does here. And Jesus is going to say, Elijah has already come. And, and Malachi's prophecy says, Elijah will come first, and then Messiah will come after. But what, what is Elijah's job? It's to prepare the hearts of the people to receive the Messiah. It's to restore things to the way they ought be. So he will turn the hearts of the children to the fathers and the fathers to the children. And, and so that enmity between parent and child will be done away with by the work of Elijah. Now, how do you do that? But you do that by turning the hearts of both to the Lord. 
and then righteousness happens because then people can see the other person as human. They can restore that sense of humanity that brings about true justice, that doesn't seek vengeance. It just seeks justice, and it seeks to be heard, but it also seeks to hear. So this comparison with Elijah couldn't be any clearer than Matthew makes it here in what he wears and what his diet is. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But then when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So what's he mean by that? Well, the viper in Jewish thought would certainly have been associated with the serpent in Genesis 3. They're, they're here to deceive. They're not here to repent. They're not here to accept John's teaching. They're here because they're afraid of the people, and so they're there to make it look like that they're in favor of John because the people are going out, and they don't want to lose their hold over the people. They're just beginning to lose their hold over the people here. John's preaching a baptism of repentance so that people can receive forgiveness of their sins and be reconciled to God in a way that's not being taught by the Pharisees, who essentially say, nope, you've got to have perfect righteousness like mine. And so here, John's preaching something that gives them hope instead of demotivating them. There's a way of being reconciled to God and getting a fresh start. And and he says, you don't want that. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath that was to come? You knew this was something you better take seriously and you better do something about, but your heart's not in it, is what John's saying. And it's exactly what Jesus will say later in Matthew's gospel in the the final week of his life when, when the Pharisees and the religious leaders come to him and they ask him, who gave you the authority to, to teach in the temple and to run out the money changers and the sellers of sacrificial animals. And Jesus says, I'll answer your question if you'll answer me this. And that question that I have for you is, John's baptism, did it come from heaven or from man? And they said, well, you know, we, we can't say that it's from heaven because then then you'll have us caught out in the sense that, that we don't even believe in it. And so we fail there. Or if we say it's from man, then the people are going to be mad at us and they're going to stone us because they believe he's from God. So Jesus is proving that they're a brood of vipers, and they were only deceiving by by pretending to allow John to do what he did and to go along with what he did. So Jesus here, or John here, calls them out. You brood of vipers. You're deceiving the people by coming out here. Who warned you to flee from the wrath that was to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He said, if you really mean this, then show it. Let's see it in your lives. Let's show it in the, see it in the way that you treat other people and the way you think about other people, because they've already said the common people are idiots. They're, they're, they are completely uneducated. You can't trust them or pay any attention to them. And so he says, let me see it. Let me, let me see the fruit in keeping with repentance, if you really mean it. And don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, which was the, the claim of the, of the Jewish leadership and the Jewish people, is, is that we have Abraham as our father. Therefore, we're good to go. He says, don't, don't presume to say that. I'll tell you, God's able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. He, he doesn't need you. you know, he threatened to do away with them in the wilderness and raise up a nation under Moses. He, he could do that again, which is exactly what he is going to do. He's going to raise up children for Abraham who are not children of Abraham, but they are children of Abraham, us, by faith. 
in Jesus Christ. So God did raise up children for Abraham in exactly the way John said. Even now, he says, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Exactly what Jesus says when he talks about the vine and the branches later. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who's coming after me is mightier than I. His sandals, I'm not worthy to carry. That, that would be the most menial thing you could ask a slave to do. In fact, you couldn't ask a Jew who had sold himself into slavery, a, a Jew couldn't ask that slave to carry his sandals. It was considered beneath them. He says, he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he'll clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John sees all that as one activity. We know from this d- distance on it that, that it's two steps. First, he's going to raise up children for Abraham. That's us. That's the Gentiles brought into the kingdom, brought into the covenant. And, and then the second thing, it is coming again, he will indeed judge the world. And he will, he will uh, judge the world, and some will be destroyed and thrown into the place of unquenchable fire. But John saw those as the thing that was going to happen immediately rather than seeing those as two distinct things. In Romans 15, 4 to 13, which is our epistle for today, Paul writes, For whatever was written in former days, that would be the Old Testament, was written for our instruction, that through endurance, perseverance, faithfulness, and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what he says is is that, that what was written before was written so that through endurance and encouragement, we might have hope. We, we, if we truly understood it and we, and, and we applied it to our lives and lived lives in, in concert with the Word of God, then, then we would have hope because we were pursuing God. And then, and then he prays, may the God of endurance and encouragement. So, so he says, we got through it with endurance and encouragement. He said, he's the God of endurance and encouragement. And what does Paul want? What does he want from the God of encur- endurance and encouragement? He wants him to give us the ability to live in harmony with one another. That, that peace that we saw back in Isaiah's prophetic word, he says, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you might with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's the point and purpose of living in harmony? It's to glorify him. It's how we are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. We are revealing him to the world, Paul says, in the way that we live with one another, in the way that we live in harmony with one another. He says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So we are to greet one another and to love one another and welcome one another in in such a way that that itself bears testimony to Christ. Loving one another, loving God, bears testimony to Christ in, in a way that's an encouragement and a hope, not just to us, but to the world when they see it. That's what's supposed to characterize Christian fellowship with one another and in the body of Christ. He says, I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, to the Jews, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. God had promised he would do this, and he became a servant, Jesus did, to them in order to confirm God's word to show that he is a truthful God. He did exactly what he promised he would do. He was faithful to his word. That's that's order of business number one, to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Our order of business two, 
and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So it's expected to have a witness beyond Israel. As it is written, quote, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who rises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. Which is exactly what today's Isaiah passage said, and exactly what last week's Isaiah passage said. The Gentiles will come seeking the wisdom, the righteousness, and the justice of God through his people, because they see it at work, and they see the blessedness of his people through those things. And then they will come, and they'll want that same righteousness and justice. And they'll see the right way to live, and the right God to worship, and and everything will be at peace and in harmony. And so the Gentiles hope in God because of what they see. They know that their hope in their gods is useless that the hope in the God of the people whose lives are so blessed to have him is the the hope they will seek. And and that's the attractive force the church is supposed to be. We're supposed to be that kind of fellowship such that the world takes note of it and comes to it. Now, I I know that there's a lot of statements about people, that the church is filled with hypocrites, and it's true. But the reality is, is, is that that's mostly spoken by outside. I know it's, it's, it's spoken by those who have, have been harmed by the church and who have seen bad things in the church as well. And the church is filled with hypocrites, but, but the church is not all wrong. That's the honest truth. No, if you get to know people, you'll learn different things. I had a, a woman come to me one year right at Christmas. She was getting ready to go see her daughter, and she wanted to talk to me first. And, and so she came in, sat in my office, and she said, John, I'm just so ashamed. And I, and I don't know. There's nobody here I can talk to about this, but, but, I, but I feel like I can talk to you, and you'll pray for me. I said, yeah, what's going on? She said, well, my daughter is living with a man, and she's got a couple of children out of wedlock, and nobody here could relate to that. I said, you've misjudged everybody in this place. I can tell you all kinds of people that that I wish you would talk to right now. But we live with these hidden things, and we live judging other people in the church where our judgment is, is horribly mistaken. We don't know the shoes that people walk in until we know those people. And we need not be afraid to share our struggles and our pain in our own lives and our own families with others in the church. That should not, it should be the safest place in the world to share that thing. It, it was a burden that was lifted from that lady that day that, that should never have gone back on her because I said, when you come back, I, want, I wanna, want you to call these people and I will already go ahead and talk to them in advance so that they know. But she knew she wasn't alone anymore with her struggles and, and that, that's what the church is intended to be as a place of safety in a world that's unsafe. And he finally, Paul finishes with, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. And this is a season of hope because we know ultimately Jesus will return and he will judge the world and everything will be set right. There will be no more pain, neither dying. And so we know ultimately that is our hope, that we will experience the blessedness of the rule and reign of Jesus Christ established in all the earth where every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And, and, and so the work that we do in evangelism now is, is in order to spread that, in order that more and more people might be filled with the Holy Spirit, more and more lives would be changed, and that we could live in peace and harmony with one another in the belief that the world also will be healed through that witness. Now, I want to leave you with, with an odd thought. 
<laughs> in the 1960s, Walt Disney had a vision, and I believe that it's roughly the same vision Jesus has for his church. I wish we would consider ourselves in this way, at least. And, and that vision that he had was called Epcot. And probably many of you, if you're in the United States, if, especially if you live in this in my half of the states, you've probably been to Epcot down in Orlando. Did you know this, that, that there, there was not actually a plan first for a Magic Kingdom, only an Epcot? Walt Disney was forced into a place by the bankers and by the state such that he had to build the Magic Kingdom first. The bankers wanted it because they knew it was a proven moneymaker and they were uncertain about the ability of Epcot to, to cash flow. And the state wanted a Magic Kingdom because they wanted the revenue that was provided by that. And so in order to have his Epcot, he had to build another Magic Kingdom. So Epcot actually means something. It's actually an acronym for this, Experimental Prototype Community of Tomorrow. And that's exactly what the church should be. We should be that experimental prototype community of tomorrow in a way that shows what the kingdom of God looks like when it's fully established in the world. We are here in the same way Israel was to be a garden similar to the Garden of Eden with abundant fruitfulness and a people living under the rule and reign of God. And then that would then become an attractive community for the rest of the world because they saw the blessedness of those people who lived under that rule and reign. In the same way, we in the church are intended to be the experimental prototype community of tomorrow. We should show in our fellowship with one another as Christians, not just in single bodies of Christ, but the way that we relate to all Christians should be a model for what it will, will look like ultimately. So when we say bad things about one another and speak against one another, then we're destroying and trashing the experimental prototype community of tomorrow. We're showing the world that our community is no different than theirs, and they don't want it. So Epcot means something. And it included, the idea included an urban city center, residential areas, industrial areas, schools, and a series of mass transport systems that would connect that community with one another. And, and Walt, here's what Walt Disney said in 1966. Epcot will take its cue from the new ideas and new technologies that are now emerging from the creative centers of American industry. It will be a community of tomorrow that will never be completed, but will always be introducing and testing and demonstrating new materials and new systems. And Epcot will always be a showcase to the world of the ingenuity and imagination of American free enterprise. So he was a big believer in the free enterprise system, and that's what he wanted it to show, that if you turn people loose to be creative and to pursue things like this, then it will become something that attracts the world, and then the world can then adapt that and move it on. So it's he wanted to not just make America great again. He wanted to, to actually create a little prototype community that was what he considered to be the true America. Jesus came, and, and he had a vision, right? And his vision was the church, and that we would be a showcase to the world of the blessedness of God's people living under his rule and reign. And that would then bring hope to the nations. And then they would come to us because of our wisdom and because of the quality of our fellowship. And they would want what we have. I can't fix a church. I can fix John, right? And that can be the way that we can change the world. If we begin to take his word seriously, if we begin to take his mission seriously, if we begin to take his kingdom seriously, and if we begin to long for the coming of that kingdom such that we begin to see it established in our own lives, then 
then we can stop being brood of vipers and we can become truly the people of God. And we can be then those who prepare the way for him to come again.